Hi, I'm Ryan, the Demon-Blooded Rules Guy. I'm Ben, the Scovland Player. I'm Helen, the Spirit Warden Storyteller. And I'm Jared, the Hull Game Master. Together, we are the Starting Equipment Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Blades in the Dark. That's not true. <laughs> not sponsor us in any way, but it's beginning to feel that way. We are here for... I mean, they should. They really I mean, should. consume all their content. We've been a pretty good would. advertisement for them. We hope. It is time for... Part four. Uh, well, we've been a pretty enthusiastic advertisement for them. I mean, I'm playing the game. <laughs> yeah. I'm going um, to play the game. So we're here for our fourth and hopefully final episode of our Blades in the Dark miniseries where we are going to talk about the world, the setting. Big picture overview stuff. About 800 years ago, a cataclysm happened that destroyed the sun, leaving the world almost completely lightless and changed the very nature of death itself. Now, In a whole bunch of ways. Yeah, yeah. The biggest of which being, if you die, unless steps are taken to prevent it, you will become a ghost. Everyone becomes a ghost when they die, unless it is stopped. And then sometimes they go on to do more exciting things. Who knows? Yes, being a ghost is just the beginning. The, the known world of the setting has been reduced to a series of islands. Almost the entire population is trapped, or safe, depending on your point of view, uh, inside major cities that are ringed by lightning towers. And we will talk about the few people later who are not in those cities, who are super neat, but mostly irrelevant to the story. Generally, that that's sort of the default. You live in a metropolis that is incredibly densely packed, ringed by these lightning towers to keep out demons and ghosts. One of the things that they mention in the book is there was this great cataclysm and they, they kind of start the timeline a little bit farther back to when Duskfall was founded. And the quote is, this was once a storybook fantasy world of magic and wonders, which was destroyed and an industrial civilization was built on top of the ruins. And I really liked that. I think it sets a good tone for the game. Uh, you are, we're not talking about science here. We're not talking about realism here. It was fantasy to begin with, and it's fantasy now. Something that I think we need to state up front is that all of the setting is going to have a lot of very intentional and well-constructed holes for you to fill in in your game. There are enough details, but there are not a ton of details. We talked about this in the past. There are two ways to build your setting for a game in general. You know, there's the approach that Blades in the Dark takes, where you give a background painting and let the players rough in the details. And then there's, you know, the, we're talking about Waterdeep or, you know, one of the other big cities in Farron. Here's an entire book about the city. We've mapped out every block. We can tell you the person who owns the inn on this street is, right? And those are the two ways to build your story. As a game designer, you can either really give a huge amount of detail and decide everything, or you can leave most of the details to your players. And Blades in the Dark definitely chose the latter. So another important aspect of the setting is the technology. Overall, think Victorian with abundant electricity and pulpy magic tech devices powered by electro-necromancy, which is a great band name also. Uh, so very Tesla punk. Also sniper rifles. Let's be clear. The true. Sure, sure. Yes. That technology, that sort of electro-magic tech uh, spark spark tech is what they call it, was developed about 300 years ago before the default uh, point in the setting, and it relies on the blood of leviathans, the demon whales that people hunt in the ink black sea. It is important to note, you do not kill a leviathan. 
you just hack parts off of it and collect the blood. When I said earlier we were going to talk about what the people who don't live in the cities do, this is what they do. They hunt demonic whales and chop bits off of them to collect their blood for magic. No, they live in the city. Some of them do. Some of they them return do. to port. Some of them do. Some of them live in like the the floating well, raft groups, right? Oh, uh, there is that. Yeah, and there are others that have no part of this whole ecology whatsoever. We'll talk about them a little bit too. They actually have a nice little in-character treatise on the nature of of how this technology works in the book. It's really cool where they're all made. And they refer to the living essence that permeates the world as electroplasm which can be used for all sorts of magical and technological purposes, but is incredibly difficult to control, Volatile. I think is the best way to put it. Corrupting. Yes. <laughs> you put labels on there. There are OSHA labels for, for well, electroplasm. Well, there aren't OSHA labels. That's part of the problem. There is no OSHA. <laughs> if there were an OSHA, they'd put labels on this. Think if oil caused ghosts. And or gives... ghosts came from oil. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Um... Yeah, so they take this electroplasm and they refine it. And the primary way they get it is through the still living blood of these leviathans who consume and concentrate this life energy, so electroplasm, inside themselves. And the entire economy and social structure is built off of this whole industry. If you're a member of a noble house, that noble house retains power and gathers wealth by owning or operating some part in this process. Either the giant boats that go out and attack the leviathans, the refining places, something. Some part of this, it powers the noble houses, which let them keep power over the people. This is the moment that I want to be really clear about what this blood is. We keep calling it blood, but it's not blood in the sense that, like, we know it to be. It's alive and restless. It has intentionality in it. Yes. Which is awesome. It is so charged with life energy that when it is separated from Leviathan, it doesn't die. It crawls and flows around and up things. It tries to escape, and they take it and torture it, essentially. Yeah, they extract the life from it in some probably horrible and traumatic means to get a more distilled and refined electroplasm that they can use. And something that's really cool about this whole setup that I kind of weirdly had trouble with at first was that that life force has to have been initially taken from something else. So, for instance, when they don't have Leviathan blood, another source that they use is the moss that grows underneath abattoirs because it has yeah. consumed the blood of dying animals, which yeah. is just cool. And bizarre. All of this Magitech uses this stuff, but the main, most important technology powered by it are those electric fences that people live inside that keep out the ghosts. That's right. You live in a city protected from ghosts by living demon blood. Because... Because you made the terrible choice to live in this setting. Basically, all of in exploitative industrialization all packaged up with demon whales. With demon whales, which yes. is great, which makes it fun and magic-y. They never describe how these leviathans look, so unless you want them to in your story, they don't have to look like whales. Oh, no, we keep saying demon whales just because there's a... Yeah, I just want to be real clear that, that's, that that is a verbal shorthand. 
Sure. There is sure. a fantastic fiction in like brief, I think just a page long earlier along in the book where first person, a character is narrating what it is like to call Leviathans up to the beach to harvest blood from them there. And they describe a little more of it in, in some pretty vivid detail. And it's, it's just real cool. Also, other things of note, they have spirit jars. So there are ways to capture ghosts, which depending on what your political and religious views are, may or may not be a really terrible idea. They mentioned that there are some people who keep libraries of captured spirits so they can talk with them and ask them questions about things. And there are others who have, and of course this is all, hideously dangerous because now you have these glass jars of angry ghosts somewhere. Yep, but you can have a library full of ghost friends. I mean, granted, they're ghost friends that want to eat you, but you can still have a library of ghost friends. They've also found a way to make robots powered by trapped ghosts called hulls. Hulls give off some extreme golem vibes. Like, this is... Straight out of Jewish history, put the words in its mouth, trap a ghost inside, you now have a protector mythology. Hulls equal ghost Jewish protectors. I don't feel that they're particularly subtle about that either, and they're not trying to be. That's fair. Uh, I'm willing to admit that I see Judaism everywhere, so I'm not willing to assume that my, uh, my read on that was correct. But if you all agree. No, no, no. I think it's important to point out, but uh, I also... I just want to be clear that I don't think the creators would have any shame about it. I really wanted to point that out because as somebody who loves the mythology of the Golem, when we play this game and we play it for an expanded period of time, I'm building a hull. I just need you all to know that. And I'm <laughs> probably fine. doing it in secret as my obsession to as my vice. So, Well, because this is the kind of game where each participant can take turns running and having their own stable of characters... We'll be able to do that for you, Jared. I'm building a hull. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what I need you to know. I'm building one. I want it. I want it. So they also talk a lot about how do people eat if there's no sun, for the most part. There are a few answers. There are, of course, a ton of things that just don't require sunlight. Lots of fungus, lots of insects, lots of sea life uh, that they farm. They also do manage to grow some food near the Electro Towers. The light from that, powered by life essence itself, is close enough to sunlight for some plants to grow. And they've managed to charge some animals with the electroplasm. So they go off a faint yellow glow constantly. And while that makes the animal toxic, they count as sunlight for plants near them to grow. So if you're a noble and you can afford these, you can have a lovely garden with fish swimming around, glowing, yeah. growing food for you. Veggies and fruits exist, but are prohibitively expensive. It's definitely a setting where it's not great to not be rich. You know, also, not even like well life. Yep. Also, rich. don't forget about the giant rat maze that yes. calls a selection of them for consumption by the masses. There are all sorts of horrible dystopian ways which they generate food for themselves it's quite interesting yep, definitely your standard exploitative dystopian etc 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 all right i think the next thing we should talk about is the magic of the setting because that's important Ooh, in every ghosts, fantasy ghosts. it's time to talk about ghosts you yes, want to talk about ghosts jerry it's always yeah 
Everybody who dies becomes a ghost. It's just, you die, you're a ghost now. It takes, I think, three days for your ghost to wriggle free from your corpse. Unless the city disposes I mean, approximately. Yeah. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Up to three. Which can always lead to some fun if you don't want somebody to be disposed of before they can become a ghost because now you have to weaken Bernie that shit. To deal with this, there's a select group called the Spirit Wardens. They're an order of masked morticians whose membership is entirely anonymous. Once you, they join, they sever all ties to their outside life. They don't have a family anymore. They don't have friends anymore. They don't have children anymore. The only people they can associate with, well, legally, are other spirit wardens. And frankly, they're one of the least corrupted institutions in the great city of Duskwall, which makes them yes. unique. For, for several reasons. One, because they know how important their jobs are and are resistant to corruption. And two, because you have to be pretty selfish, even in exploitative capitalism terms, to be willing to try and corrupt the only thing keeping your city from falling to hungry ghosts. You should leave them alone. They have a job to do. It's really important. But that's, but Jared, yeah, that's why it's such a great idea because no one would think you would do it. <laughs> and it is important really? to note, All right, people are not trying to leave them alone. Also, they don't really talk about their recruitment policies. I kind of imagine it's a volunteer thing. So I don't know how many people volunteer for this seeking, you know, take kickbacks and bribes. Definitely think of these guys as an extra set of trash guys that have to sweep through your, you know, your your quarter of the city every few days. For and they have a special breed of crow that can sense when people die and fly out to circle the body, letting the warden come find your corpse. They're called death seeker crows. Also, at their, their headquarters, whenever someone dies, a bell rings for that district. Which is super creepy and awesome. Hashtag aesthetic. So how do they actually prevent the ghost from getting out of your body? So once they get your body, they incinerate it in electroplasm, which because of its nature can interact with the ghost and burns the ghost away. We say because of its nature, the reason that the lightning walls work is because they are repelling the ghosts that wander the dead wasteland outside of these cities. They cannot directly interact with the electroplasm, or, or rather, they are affected by it profoundly, which is why your body has to be destroyed in that way in order to destroy your ghost. Because death is everywhere and because this world is so magic-filled, anybody can attempt to detect and talk to ghosts and deal magic. Every playbook has some skill that they can take to, to change what they can do with ghosts. Ghosts are not limited to like the two magic-focused playbooks. Everybody can play with ghosts. So how do ghosts work? What do they do? Well, once you have unfortunately died, you've managed to escape the spirit warden somehow and wriggled free of your body. Ghosts usually start off pretty normal. Um, I mean, some of them don't realize what's going on or confused, but they're they're mostly people at the beginning, and then they they start to decline. Ghosts feed off of life energy, and they do it by possessing living people just for like a little bit, like they're like riding you to get their high. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and they really talk about like, well, one, obviously that's pretty bad if you're the person that they're possessing, <laughs> um, but two. They, they tend to get worse and worse and worse. They go mad. They stop caring about people. They become less and less coherent. They're more about just how they can, they can, they can get their fix of being alive. Uh, if they do it long enough, 
they can actually merge into the body and become a vampire, which is this, well, it's a vampire, but they're they're a combination of being alive and dead. They're talked about a little bit. They're, they're pretty interesting in the setting. The spirit wardens are not big fans. No, not friends. They're not friends. No, most people aren't big fans of vampires. Well, I think that brings up a really good point. We talk about there are ghosts everywhere and everyone can try and talk to them and everyone will have an interaction with a ghost at some point in their life. That doesn't mean that normal people like ghosts and want to hang out with them. Like, ghosts are still terrifying. They're still, like, ghosts and they're going to eat part of your life. They're a perpetual reminder that the world just beyond the gate is dead and hungry and always coming for you. They're also the scary person on the bus or the train that, like, is a fact of life. If you have to, and you know, if you have to do that, like, you're walking down the street, you see someone scary, that's just something that happens. Um, it's that, except now you have another layer. Because they're dead, they would like to consume your soul. They don't need your wallet. And eventually, if you're not careful, they might actually eat your body and your soul, and now your corpse belongs to them, and it's a vampire, and you're somewhere, <laughs> right? Like... Uh-oh. They even go so far as to make the distinction that unless you're one of the two magical classes that routinely deal with ghosts, whenever you encounter one, you have to make a resistance check or you're going to run away or freeze out. It's legitimately terrifying. Which brings us to demons, because nothing says scary <laughs> like a demon. Yay. This is one of the moments where they're intentionally vague. Demons aren't well understood they may be like leaking in from another reality they might be from a religious afterlife no one knows lots of people think they know but no one like actually knows the thing we do know is that they're really really powerful and dangerous and they have powers that nothing else can do it's hard to kill them and they hate you. the leviathans we mentioned earlier are the most commonly brought up demons in the setting. Demons tend to be a plot device. When they come up in the narrative or as the book describes them, the different plot elements, in some of the, you know, randomly generate your plot or randomly generate your entanglements, demons will feature. And it is an element of the narrative. However you choose to deal with it, it will only be complicated and terrifying. And that's not to say that it will always be bad. Demons can give you great power. It's just what... There's always a price. Yep. So we, we've talked about the technology. We've talked about the magic. Uh, why don't we go into actually some detail about the world itself? We mentioned the sun was shattered, and they mean that kind of literally. At dawn and dusk, there are shards of the sun that light up the night, barely. But other than that, there isn't any sunlight. The moon is still around and visible, and the stars are there, but the stars have begun to wander outside of their constellations. And sometimes you can see constellations under the water, which is uh, alarming. Under the opaque ink water. Yes. The, the sea is black ink as far as the eye can see, except that there are constellations below it, visible to sailors. Because isn't that awful? The, yeah. There was a cataclysm. Uh, yeah. It broke the world. The default city is Duskval. It's on the island of Akaros and Duskval or Duskwall. It's London. I mean, ish. It, it's London. It's it's weird, creepy, ghost London. Large parts of it have fallen into disrepair. It's a major port. The book actually goes into a pretty nice breakdown of the different districts of Duskfall. We don't have to go over them all here, but there are a nice variety from the 
very rich home of the elite and the university to the port district to a, a fallen into disrepair formerly nice district to just utter squalor there's a, a nice whole gamut and they give you good hooks for places for people for factions that are there i actually really like the the breakdown of the city it's definitely worth a read several times over to see how everybody starts fitting together because they do it is a functioning society. also if if you know or enjoy london it is set up very much like london in like what parts are next to each other and like you definitely have like the poor artist district who might come from wealth but certainly aren't themselves which you know like cough 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 it's a really nice it feels like a full city other than duskfall they do detail the empire uh, but very briefly the empire is composed of a series of islands that are connected by electro rail Akaros, the the island the duskfall is on it's rocky, it's filled with petrified forests. I, I would say, you know, horrible fantasy Britain-ish. It came out of the Cataclysm as one of the most together of the islands to give you an idea of how world-ending this was. Yes. Um, there's Severos, which is a, a very thorny and scrubby plains island. There are actually some people who are not in the Empire, non-Imperials, who live in free tribes and manage to scavenge and survive riding something that's called ghost horses. What are they like? We don't know, but they're ghost horses. You know what? I bet they're very pleasant and friendly and not at all scary. Probably. It's probably just a misnomer. <laughs> it's so that other people don't come to interrupt with their horses. Yeah, it's like the whole Iceland-Greenland yes. thing. They don't want people to steal their horses. And then there's Aruvia, which <laughs> is like all black desert. It's like obsidian mountains, raging volcanoes. Physical upheaval is kind of the name of the game in Aruvia. And my, my personal favorite is the Dagger Isles. Suppressive jungles. The people who survive there survive there without lightning towers. You are living in the Amazon on an island, hiding from ghosts and demons who are coming to eat your soul. Would be fun to play a game there. It's uh, it's not detailed how they survive there. People don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. One one assumes some of the ancient protective sorceries, but well, you know, we might talk I assume about that a little later. Just crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> They give you a lot of hints or, or ideas, but also contradict themselves sometimes. Yeah. So maybe they still have protective sorceries. Maybe they make deals with demons. Mm, up to you. Or deals with leviathans. Well, I think it's maybe it's oh, hinted yeah. at somewhere that people. Yeah, but well, that. leviathans are demons. Let's be clear. They're they're the the less immediately threatening type, but they are they are demons. They are giant demons. Uh, I don't think that's explicitly really? stated. Pretty sure it's not. I. We can find out. I mean, I I assume so too, but it's also one of those. I think it's one of those things where they're like read between the lines or make your own story. Well, you know, listeners can uh, buy this book and find out for themselves. <laughs> and then write us really <laughs> nasty emails. About Fact check us. Go ahead. <laughs> Go give money to the creators and then write us emails. Yes. Uh, not looking forward to those emails. <laughs> All right. The last part of the empire is Skovlan. It's full of cold mountains and rough tundra. It's supposed to be Scandinavian. Their thing is they're the most recent place to join the empire, and they were joined by force. There was an uprising. 
they lost the war. They're part of the Empire now. Joined. Still kind yeah, of unhappy Empire. about it. The Undying Emperor said, hey, you're going to do this stuff. And they said, now nah, we good. And yeah. then he said, guess what? You're going to do this and stuff. And then colonization happened. Oh, sad face. <laughs> That's basically what we know about the actual geography of the setting. Like I said, they actually go into pretty good detail about the districts of Dustfall. But uh, what we just told you about the rest of the places is pretty much what there is to say. Yep. Your whole game, as written, will take place in Dustfall. If you decide to go off the beaten trail, that is up to your table, and you will be filling in the blanks. Uh, <laughs> we can delete yeah. some of that stuff, but I just wanted i wanted to fact check. Uh, in the section on demons, it said, the demons freed the greatest of their kind, the Leviathans, to shatter the world. Ah! Uh, so okay. definite demons. Um, Definitely yes. demons. But like fact checked in an unknowable, okay. vast monstrosity kind of way, as yes. opposed to a charming individual in a suit who comes by and is willing to make you a deal kind of way. Yeah, they have no need for pretense. They're yeah. they're, they're vast, unknowable, tentacled entities that dwell below. In the inky black water. Let's talk about the social landscape a bit. There are a ton of factions in this book. A lot. They're, they give you numerous gangs. They give you government branches. They give you secret societies. They give you different religions. And they're all tied together and competing with each other for different resources and objectives. They give you a lot of hooks and potential ideas and potential secrets that each one has. Uh, but it's up to you to pick out what you like. Yeah, remember that this is a city of people on top of people on top of people. So everybody's in everybody's way and in everybody's business. And we've we've talked before about how maybe some of the clocks, it can feel like things can get out of hand. You're keeping track of so many different things. You should be aware these are all here to be useful to you, not to overwhelm you. So all of these different hooks might be happening in some kind of vague notional timescape but if they aren't necessarily a focus of your game you don't have to be keeping track of all of them at once they're all here for you well i think that this might actually be the simplest and most brilliant part of the setting for me i know i'm talking about it before we get to the what we liked section but they do such a good job of giving a layered tapestry of factions and different types of factions but making it really easy to have a complete world using as few or as many of them as you like. And I don't think I've ever seen that in a book before. Yeah. Like the, the, the way that they have had them overlap without being overly complex, you could have a whole game centered around three or four of these factions and have it feel complete. Or you could use all, I don't know, 25 plus of them that they give you. If you really want to go wild. I mean, yeah, and I, and I, but I love that like it all seems to work. That's really brilliant yeah. to me. I especially like how they give you a few example people in each faction. Oh, and yeah. Many of them are like, oh, they're actually a secret plant with this group. Or they're working with this group for this heretical goal. Or whatever. Um, and they really feel interconnected like it is a living world. And they it's not just that they give you uh, NPCs and factions. They also do the write-up on each of the different neighborhoods within Duskfall and tie them to more NPCs, more factions, and more hooks. 
That's important because remember when we were talking about mechanics and we talked about like you are a gang, you start with a couple blocks of territory and you have to fight for more. So you need to like pick a neighborhood and who are you fighting for territory with? Who are their other enemies? Like all of that stuff, right? Like there is no place to build in this world. There is no place to make new territory. If you are expanding your territory, it's because you are taking it from someone. This really truly is a zero sum of resources game. And that's neat, right? Like, it's not like we can be like, well, we're going to go outside the city and start a new hamlet where we can all be friends. That's like not an option, dude. Or would be, you know, the entire point of the campaign. I don't know if there's really what you could call a meta plot. There are some problems or secrets or story hooks that they have out there that if you decide to run with are going to be a pretty big deal and probably going to define your story and your game. I know that uh, my favorite was they just kind of threw out there in one of the faction write-ups that there are fewer leviathans being landed each harvest season. And in fact, they're starting to disappear from their usual hunting grounds altogether. This is obviously a problem because they're the primary source of electroplasm and the social structure of all of the empire. So unless some someone finds some new hunting grounds or some enterprising researcher finds an alternate source of power to keep the city safe, they're going to run out of electroplasm reserves, which means the lightning towers will fail and humanity will be eaten by ghosts. That's a thing. My favorite of the meta plot hooks is the idea of the reconciled. So most ghosts go crazy and do their thing stealing life force from people until a spirit warden kills them again, destroys them. Not the reconciled. The reconciled are rare, and they have their full faculties. They have their full mind, and they're in the process of, like, becoming important members of society. And they're just ghosts who think like regular people. And no one knows how they're made, and they're creepy, and wouldn't that be a fun hook to explore? infiltrating and possessing and taking over the church that says that they shouldn't or let that ghosts should be destroyed won't that be fun down the line yeah i enjoy the idea of the uh, undying emperor who may be losing power because they switched over from sorceries to these gigantic lightning towers well they true they don't really tell us anything about the undying emperor except oh no that he's he immortal and that he protected the cities before they discovered the the lightning tower technology uh and he actually wanted them to change because the sorcery wasn't doing a great job anymore and then as you might guess from everything we've said describing the uh quite grim setting there are just worker revolts upon worker revolts you know, you don't have to go far to find some some social upheaval. Uh, and you, that just writes itself. So why don't we talk about our particular favorite parts of this? I really loved how well they've baited all their hooks. The setting is just vague enough, which is a really hard balance to strike. They've made it so that anytime I'm reading any section of the book, Um, I'm already adding on to what they've written for my own story um, that I want to tell using that information, which is extremely powerful and extremely helpful 
um, for me as a player or a GM. Yeah, and I know I talked about, I rambled about this a little earlier, but when you look at like Neverwinter or something in D&D, you can't have new players play in Neverwinter without reading 150 pages of fiction so they know what's happening in the world at minimum, right? So much more has been written about Neverwinter than that. But because the entire society of Neverwinter has been created... Like, if you look at the fiction, we, like, know who the leader of Emperor's head chef is. As opposed to Blades in the Dark, where they're like, hey, here are the gangs and what the gangs are trying to do, and here's some people who are probably in them. Go forth. Conquer. Right? Um. Next, something I really liked is that, unlike a lot of settings that we've referenced or Hunter that we play in frequently, the supernatural is part of everyday life may not be a fun part of everyday life but if you went up to someone and screamed there are ghosts they would be like yep yep life's also a stunning hellscape what else you got for me like i i think that's a really interesting way of handling it that it is an additional trial but it's a very common one one of the like loadout zero items that everyone can take is a bone charm to try and keep ghosts away so it is expected everyone's going to have one of those and then finally uh, the city is alive i feel like in a lot of role-playing games you wind up with kind of this clockwork mechanism um, of a city that functions um, they've left a few holes and ways for you as the player to interact with it but like the city pretty much works in this one the city only technically works. Um, Duskfall is is a bad place, and everybody's just scraping by, and you know we can see all these factions and so how this, they interact. This is one of my favorite things about the world too. So I'm gonna step in and say a little bit here. Yes. When we're running Hunter, when I'm running Hunter, which essentially takes place in our world but with monsters, literal monsters, not the political kind. I have to work a lot to keep the tension high and keep it from dropping to like boring everyday life between missions. This whole world and how messed up their society and world are keeps the tension high in like a really, like there's a reason that your competent people are criminals and not doing something nice for the world because there literally is no way for them to be successful and eke out anything better than a miserable life within the compounds of the law not unless you're a noble it's just impossible so what's the only thing left crime the mechanics reinforce that uh with the entanglements that you roll in the course of your downtime section your life is going to get complicated whether you like it or not. And it's so cool. It's so cool <laughs> that, like, the city is alive, but terrible. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> yeah. it feels like you are constantly in a ship taking on water. That's what it feels like. And I think that that's awesome. Golly. Uh, I like a lot. <laughs> um, and so to start out sort of with the, the more logistical side... From the player standpoint, this isn't a book of modules, and you are no in no way discouraged from reading any part of this book as a player. You're not going to run into any secrets that that uh, you can't you shouldn't know or it'll be spoilers or et cetera. 
everything that you know here is exactly what the storyteller knows. And if they build more from there, then, then that's, that's just at the table. So you can take any of these hooks as a player and choose to run with them. And that's your part of, uh, your part of directing the story and moving the stories forward, as well as reinforcing the play to find out, which they have talked about, which the, the, the writers talked about earlier in the book and some of their philosophy of the, of the game. I just want to interject for a second. It's also one of the things that makes the game really beginner friendly. Cause if you're new to role-playing, trying to create a whole background for yourself can be daunting. Take one of these hooks that you like and run with it. And there's definitely something to be said from the nude for role-playing perspective. I, I mean, I've definitely been in games where I was playing with people who'd been, who'd been playing games in that setting and read all of, you know, 20 years of material for, say, some of the old World of Darkness games or, you know, superhero games where, well, they've read all of the comics and I may not necessarily have, you're starting on the same page. And that's not unique to this game. That's any kind of game that has a self-contained setting in the book. It goes beyond that and into all of the hooks that are right here are up for you to pick. Go ahead and pick them. Drive the story that way. Also, uh, I liked that because they've kept the scope just on the city, they were able to take the time and go and focus on, and as much as we might want to hear about the ghost horses, they were able to take the time to focus on the different neighborhoods and knit them together into what we were describing before as that beautifully layered system um, that, that can work with any, any number of its parts or you can remove any number of those parts however you want to streamline your game. If you want to do a heist-focused, low-power, maybe even low, relatively low-tension game, you know, just kind of put some of those hooks to the side, uh, some of those revolutions can, you know, be kind of slowly simmering, you can do that. It can be very monster of the week, to use a phrase, um, and that's fine. But all the materials also here if you want to if you have to scratch your birthright itch and you want to do a domain game with your spiders in uh in dustball you can also do that because of how they've how they've presented the material to you i think they did a really good job with that narratively i really can't get into anything specific because this game is my jam it is weird it is dark there are demon whales it reminds me of spider aspire a lot in in flavor and in kind of how they present a type of game rather than just a setting or just a set of mechanics. It, Spire, if, if you're not familiar, you are playing a subversive group of revolutionaries trying to upend the social order. That's how the game is presented to you. It's a, it's a, a type of game packaged with the setting. In here, this is a heist game. You're doing scores. You can do anything else other than that that you want, but it comes prepackaged as a heist game, and it's built that way mechanically. It's built that way in the setting. It knows exactly what it is, and it's very weird. It's all about and doing crime. It. Doing so much crime. So So great. much ghost crime. <laughs> love it. There are only two things that I really wanted to talk about that I love that aren't on other people's lists. For the players you are tied to the setting before your game even starts. Step six of character creation is pick a friend or rival. They want you to pick somebody from one of these hooks or from one of these ideas or places 
who isn't a part of your gang, who is important to you. I love systems that tie you to the game in session zero before we've even started. That is my jam. And you do it again in the crew creation. Yeah. When you pick another game that are a gang that are either your rivals or that you tithe to. So interesting, right? And so, and you can in downtime have those relationships change. It's just such a good way to get started and get started in the middle of the action. You don't have to slowly build up relationships. You start a game with relationships. The other thing that I love is I hate game settings where it feels like it's hopeless and you can't do anything, but I love worlds that are super dark. And there's some tension between those two things. And a lot of games feel like they either aren't dark enough for me or they are too hopeless. This game hits the right note of like, nah, dude, the world's really screwed up, but you can make it better for you and your friends at least. And that's, that, oh, yeah. that is very enticing to me as a storyteller. They open up the Duskfall section. They describe you know, the cataclysms and the monsters and the ghosts and everything that has happened. But this is a community of survivors. You're playing survivors. It's so cool. It's so good. It's such a nice balance. Yeah. I love uh, all the little weird hooks they toss out and never do anything. (laughs) (laughs) And they're brilliant. Um, They'll be like one sentence. Yes. So, like, one of the ethnic groups they mention, they all have, like, random non-human features. Like, maybe they have shark teeth or feathers for hair or cat eyes. And the rumor is they're this way because they have demon blood. Is that true? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. But it's there. They mention at one point that a few centuries ago, there was a vampire cult among the aristocracy who believed that being a vampire was, was like, the sacred pinnacle of, of humanity, right? Because it's the best parts of being both dead and alive. And that was uh, like burned out and they were all killed, probably. Yeah. Just a, a throwaway line. Also, the, the largest church, the Church of the Sacred Flesh, uh, celebrates physical life and decries immaterial existence after death. Which is a very interesting philosophy. They never talk about like their practices or what they teach people to do. But that's such an evocative idea. Like, I could walk you through one of their services right now as a GM. We could roleplay a service for that because I know what that means to me. Like, that's a hook I'm in on. Right. Imagine, as a setting element, taking the stance in a world where everyone becomes a ghost, that ghosts are bad. That is the official stance of the dominant religion. Not just that, but, you know, sure. Ghosts are bad, they're wicked, and you're going to become one. So you should try to avoid that at all costs. You should enjoy your life now. Just the tenets of, like, what is this religion like? What do they teach people It's the reverse do? of original <laughs> sin, and that's awesome. Yeah, like, you're fine now, but one day you're yeah. going to stop being fine when you die. What, what do I do about that, preacher? <laughs> like... like a, I need more information. I just imagine that all of their holidays are Mardi Gras. There's so much there, even though they don't give you much, right? I too think like, okay, well, you know, it must be a very like, we want to be happy. We want to enjoy our lives while we can before we become Bacchanals and therapy for everybody. Yeah, like a therapeutic Bacchanal. Unrelated, vice is a major element of the game for (laughs) scoundrels and normal people alike. It's required. (laughs) That's a great example, right? We just had a a couple minute conversation about like 
a thing that's mentioned in a handful of sentences in the book. It's evocative. And I love all those little things. That's my favorite part about the about the setting. I, I like lots of it, but just the, just the evocative little hooks. So what don't we like about the setting? Ben, what do you dislike? God, I've been trying to think about that. And it's it more comes down to almost individual sections. I don't have any overall dislikes in it. I think the setting is really fun. I mean, you can nitpick here and there. I would have loved to see some more about how Leviathans are hunted. But then again, uh, that kind of defeat the point of this being so vague and, and well-constructed. So I don't really have anything that um, isn't just so I'm, a strong I'm going to let you, the listener, in on a secret. We have a document where we lay out what we're going to say for every episode. And the section on what we disliked is blank for everybody but me. <laughs> I am willing to offer a couple of caveats. Yeah, sure. I'd love to hear it. But that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. I got something. So, so I find what makes a setting great is that it is fun to tell stories on. And what makes mechanic great is that they support and facilitate the narrative. And bonus points if they are particularly elegant in some fashion, mathematically or uh, in, other, in, in some other way. I think, though, that it can be said certain games are particularly good at certain types of play. That's not to say that you cannot intermix them all. Abs you know, absolutely, you can play any type of game in any sort of format, like the one, one shots, few shots, swapping around storytellers, uh, long-running campaigns. Obviously, you can do that with any type of game. I think this particular type of game really does encourage and lend itself to more of those uh, few shots, swapping storytellers between major arcs, that sort of not limited play, but maybe picking up multiple few shots over a long period of time with either the same character or different characters, as opposed to one contiguous weekly for years campaign. Not to say at all that you can't run it that way, but I don't know that you'll be really getting at some of the best opportunities with how they recommend character growth, how they recommend character creation, how they recommend you have a large stable, of characters, I don't know that you'll be getting at all of the best opportunities if you run it in a long campaign style. That's the closest thing. It's not a dislike. It's just a comment on its format and the logistics of the game. Sorry. So I have a legitimate dislike. Yeah. And I already said it when we were talking about what I didn't like about the mechanics. But it's both a mechanic and setting dislike. All of the magical things in this setting are either really low-powered or really high-powered. And when your characters are in the middle, it's going to be pretty hard to interact with the supernatural. Early stages when your characters are weak, it's easy. Late stages when your characters are powerful, it's easy. In that middle, I think it's going to be hard to do it and not have it feel unbalanced. And that is a, is a tiny nitpick because I love this setting, but that, that is a real complaint. I would really have, I would really want to try and run characters through to that point because just looking at the mechanics as they're written without, without the direct experience playing, it really feels like there's a fairly quick progression to 
real solid roles with how they handle XP, how they handle character growth, and how many actions are really on your playbook. So I, you know, the, I would have a question of how quickly can you get to a high-powered character? How long do you actually spend in either that beginning weak point or that middle point? And I, I don't think it's super long, but I still think it's a flaw if that middle point isn't supported. I think that middle point is is a pretty narrow point, right? But it's still, mm-hmm. yeah. If if we're thinking about the weaknesses of a setting, that seems obvious to me. Because even if you're only there for three sure. or four sessions, that's still three or four sessions that are awkward. Yeah, you're just gonna have to go deal with human faction politics in that middle bit. <laughs> Oh, darn. And I'm not saying it's the biggest complaint in the world. I have much bigger complaints about other settings. But, like, that's that's the one thing that I look at Mm. and I'm like, oh, guys, you nailed so much. For me, the flaw in the setting is makes you want to play other games. I like this setting. I want to play in this game. But reading theaters like, man, you could really do, like, a a good Dishonored game with this. Or, Or you could do something, like, it makes me think about how I would make another game with Well, that's the nature of it being game. vague because it gets you thinking and then you start thinking about other things that are similar that you like and you're like, oh, I could totally put this here, right? Jared was just telling us uh, before we started this about a game. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm reading a series called Red Rising right now and I think this would be a great place for Red Rising. Sure. It makes me like, I stop. I'm like, oh, I wonder how I could do this. And then I come up and go, oh, right, right, right. I get distracted easily from this setting and just sort of go off on tangents about how to do other settings with it. I kept getting distracted because I'd be reading it and thinking about the character that I was going to play in this game and then losing my place in the book. You see, I just kept thinking of different like stories to tell and stuff like that. So sim- a similar thing, but slightly Man, different. if you have listened to all of our podcasts, this is the most nitpicky we have ever had to be about what we don't like about a setting. Um. <laughs> One thing I, I do want to say, um, and they mention it in the book, but if you enjoy, or if you think you might enjoy this some setting, um, give The Lies of Loch Lamora a read. I, I think they heavily base the setting off of it. Um, not in a bad way. You would enjoy that book if you enjoy this um, RPG. I'd say you'd also enjoy Spire. Yes. If you ever wanted to, like, be a bank robber in Call of Cthulhu, then, like, this is the world for you. Dishonored, Bloodborne, Peaky Blinders, Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, that's what it is. And I don't know about you, but that makes my heart sing. I think... Obviously, it makes all of our... I think that that's it for us. (laughs) Yep. Well, I'm Ryan, the Demon Blooded Rules guy. I'm Ben, the Scovelin player. I'm Helen, the Spirit Warden Storyteller. And I'm Jared, the Hull Game Master. Together, we are the Starting Equipment Podcast. And hopefully, you join us next week as we do a review of the D&D book, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. That's right, everyone. We're not doing another Blades in the Dark episode next week. Well, yes. next week. Yes. Um, we promise. We will be doing our first Let's Play soon, and it will be a Blades in the Dark Let's Play, because we are a Blades in the Dark podcast. But next week, (laughs) we will be taking a brief interlude for another game. All right, thank you all so much for joining us.